0: Hey, ladies, I just wanted to give a shout out to a good friend of mine, Reshma Sajani. She was on Super Women. She's the author of Brave Not Perfect. She also has a podcast. It's called Brave Not Perfect. And I think if you're looking for another podcast to give you that oomph you need every day, if you feel like you're trying to do things flawlessly, you're tired or you beat yourself up constantly, this is a great one to listen to. She talks about how bravery is a habit you form. And she wants you to help build that muscle so that when it really matters, you're ready to take on the challenges that life throws at you. So listen and subscribe to her podcast wherever you listen to them. Hi, everyone. It's Rebecca. You're listening to Superwomen. Today, my guest is Jill Cargman. She is hilarious. You do not want to skip this episode. Most notably, writer and star of Odd Mom Out, where she chronicled a quote-unquote, fictional lives of women on the Upper East Side. But she's an author, she's a badass, mom of three, and um, there's a lot of swearing in this episode. I'm just going to warn you, she does not hold back. So if swearing offends you, definitely don't listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy. So I'm with Jill Kargman. We met through a mutual friend, Miss Crystal Mears. Yay, love Crystal. I would love to just hear, like, I obviously knew you when I met you from Odd Mom Out. But what was before? Before I was just a writer,
1: I wrote books and I, I started in magazines. I had worked as an assistant, um, an interview in Harper's Bazaar, and I, I thought I wanted to be in magazines and just be a magazine writer. And then I wound up writing a screenplay for a movie that was at Sundance and then books. Like I wrote trashy novels for what years. Kind of trashy novels? My first one was called The Right Address. It's about a co-op on Park Avenue and the different people that live in it. And then um, eventually Momzillas, which was, I think, my fourth or fifth, um, Momzillas became Odd Mom Out later. NBC had optioned it and hired a writer to adapt it because they wouldn't let me do it because I was sort of a nobody with in terms of TV writing at that point. Even though I had written for MTV, I had a bunch of shows there, but it wasn't in the Writers Guild. It's all non-union there. right? So um, I begged to do it, but they wanted to bring in big guns. And then it never got made. And years later when I met Andy Cohen, I said, can't you just like reach over and take it? Because NBC owns Bravo. And he said, that's not really how it works. But um, So I, I had sent him Momzilla's and my book of essays. Sometimes I feel like a nut. And we really developed odd mom out together like a lot of people ask why bravo why weren't you on comedy central or hbo or something else and i said like they never would have touched me they i was a book writer and you get put in those pods kind of where you can it's harder to break out right and um once i was meeting with andy's henchman at the time laris spots who later became my showrunner you know, I realized like this is a collaboration. It was totally from within our team there that it grew. I didn't go around and have it fully formed and pitch it at
0: all the networks. So stepping back before that, you were always a writer. How did you know that you loved writing? Did you write a lot in high school? Like how did you decide that that and then and then from there, the second question would be, how did you get a book published? Like, you know, cause well, I know so the, many writers that struggle with that.
1: I think, um, yeah, high school was a help in 10th grade. I had a really good teacher, Barkley Johnson, who's, who said, you know, you have a voice, but I really think it was my dad had always said, write like you talk. And so whenever I wrote letters to my friends, a lot of them still will send me screenshots of letters that I sent them in 10th grade, 11th grade. I always wrote exactly like how I talked and I just shit it out. I don't edit it or I never did rough drafts. I just like diaryed it out. And it felt like, <laughs> you know, I it was like breathing to me. It was like talking because I wasn't self-conscious about putting everything out there properly, you right. know, and, and and then later, um, ironically, I was not, I never took English in college. I was not an English major. I got to college and my grade had, I think, 400 English majors. And, you know, when you're an English major, I think you start to get self-conscious and you have these people criticizing your work and everyone passes around the stories and rips them to shreds. And I don't think I'm wired, or at least at the time, I don't think I could have handled that very well. And that didn't sound appealing to me. So I became an art history major. There were 28 of us. I had only professors, no TAs. I had so much attention. And I think that's how I became really a writer, was solidifying this kind of visual language where you're repainting the work and I focused on Northern Renaissance because I'm kind of like macabre in that way. And I love skulls and Albrecht Dürer and all of the Dutch, some of the Dutch still lives too, the Vanitas paintings. And I always have had this, you know, affinity for death because I feel like the happiest people talk about mortality a lot. I don't know. I just, it's been my thing. But anyway, I love that kind of art. And then um, in my summer internships in magazines, they, I knew they were never going to have me write or anything, but I was packing trunks or taking Polaroids back, back in the Stone Ages when we took Polaroids. Um, <laughs> I have, like, my walker with tennis balls on it. Um, I was doing, like, menial work, but my dad always said, like, You got this internship because of me and you didn't get it because you're so great. I made a phone call. So you're going to fucking be the first one there in the morning and the last one to leave. So I was I was there before anybody else. I took out the garbage. I would redo their Rolodex. I would clean their desks. So I feel like I got a lot out of it, but I really pumped so much energy into those internships. And then I, because of those summer internships, I kind of had a job waiting for me, an interview when I got out of Yale. And they, as soon as I got there, I realized, you know, this is going to be really hard. It was a huge adjustment because I worked crazy hours for 18,000 a year and I wasn't really treated well, but I was allowed to write. So right away, they had me doing articles. So that's how I, I mean, I wrote
0: like 200 articles there. Wow. Yeah. So when your dad said to you, I made this phone call, you got this internship, you better work your ass off. Do you feel like him saying that and putting himself on the line and then you working hard helped shaped your work ethic on the go forward? Yes, totally. Because even though the tasks were really
1: menial and fetching coffee and clean, literally cleaning people's desks and stuff, I felt like I was told all the time I had to pay my dues and that it doesn't matter what you've accomplished in college or whatever you are at square fucking one and you have to be ready to eat shit sandwiches.
0: You know, what's funny is now that behavior is frowned upon. Let's say that's mean and you can't do that to the millennial workforce. And I say that as a millennial. Do you think that that sets up people to then not work as hard?
1: Yeah, because I think that now, I mean, the good part of that is, of course, office culture and there's no verbal abuse. I sustained like more verbal abuse than you can even imagine. We were all tortured. People were in tears all the time. Um, so I'm glad that that's not there. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I definitely feel like some people in your generation feel above certain tasks. Yeah. And I don't think that that's a good
0: thing. I know there's a big gap between the elder millennials and the younger ones. Right. Exactly. So then when you decided to write your first book, you had the contacts or you had to go through the struggle of finding them. And did you get rejected? Or it was like it's actually a, a
1: funny story though. I took like this weird side door to do the books because I had done the screenplay about, um, an intern in a, in a, fashion magazine called intern that was, um, it was with Dominique Swain. It was 99 and it went to Sundance in 2000. So a long time ago, not the, the successful intern with Robert De Niro and Anna Hathaway, a different one. <laughs> um, so it only came out in New York and LA, but, I wrote the script with my writing partner, Carrie Doyle, and it was really exciting. It got made, and I was 24, and I thought, like, this is great. I'm going to be a screenwriter. Wrong. So I sent—we got it, but it got us our agent. You know, it was a stepping stone. And the agent said— okay, now you have to write a spec script. So we had this idea of a co-op and the different apartments in it as one building called the right address. And we sent it to my agent, the screenplay. And she said, well, I have good news and bad news. The good news is I laughed my fucking ass off. And I said, what's the bad news? And she said, well, this is too esoteric a milieu. You know, you you have like the coasts that will get this, you know, between Zabars and the Hollywood Bowl. No one gives a shit about like rich people in New York. And I said, that's such bullshit. Like, look at Sex and the City. Look at Nanny Diaries. And she said, well, those that's apples and oranges because they were books first. So we said, let's write it as a book. Fuck it. So we novelized our screenplay. And that was my first book. Wow. So we totally took like this weird backdoor. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really weird. And for those years, I had three kids in four years and I was underwater, like underwater, like I couldn't breathe. And books were my only way to be alone because I felt like I was constantly pawed by the kids and all this shit. So I loved writing books because it was solitary. And now I don't want to write books because I like people now because my kids are all (laughs) grown up. So I like being in a writer's room in TV
0: world. It's so much better. And what gave you the, I don't want to say like you had never acted before. So I had, I had. had,
1: yeah, I was in college, never not in a play. Like okay. I was in so every show. it wasn't show. new for
0: you to be no. in Audubon Mount.
1: No, not at all. And in fact, the la- when I took a bow on the stage my senior year before graduation, I was like, well, this is so sad. I'm never going to act again because I didn't want to go and be an actress. Right. I wanted to act, but I didn't want to be an actress. And I thought you'd have to like blow Harvey Weinstein or whatever. Like I knew the shit that was going on and I'm a workaholic and I, would, I wasn't willing to have that sporadically working lifestyle I really wanted like a job yeah so um, I just thought okay that's not a life for me and I'm not gonna like gargle casting director balls
0: not comfortable to gargle them no
1: well now they have Gucci knee pads in the fashion show yesterday (laughs) I watched it live on Instagram so I feel like I took this different backdoor in but on the flip side I, there's more of me now. Like I, I, I'm 44 and and I'm now the balsamic reduction of myself. Whereas at 22, I never would have, I think, been a working actress because there's just none of me to now. I, I mean, I'm, I know who I am. I have my family. I don't give a shit. So it's like taking risks isn't scary to me. Totally. But as a young person, I don't understand how these girls do it and get, you know, have trolls and shit. Like I have crocodile skin, so I don't, give it am but when I you know I'll go through the Twitter when Odd Mom Out first came out and they're like she looks like Marilyn Manson shot on her face like her (gasps) hair is gross like her like season two from season one to season two I got Invisalign because all these people were like she has snaggle teeth her teeth are like nightmare jaws and then I was like do I have Shitty snaggle teeth because I never had braces. I have
0: snaggle teeth.
1: Well, my publicist was like, you should just do Invisalign. It'll help straighten them and it actually will like make you look younger because your teeth can age you and shit. I just saw an article in Vogue. So I got Invisalign. And sure enough, it straightened my teeth. A year later, season two comes out. And the first thing I see on Twitter, someone's like, oh, her teeth used to have so much more character. Ah, uh, But I was like, you, you know what? Win. That's right. Like, you can't please anybody. Like, you just have to do you. And right. I actually am fine with my straightened teeth. Do, do you still wear it to keep them straight? I have a quote unquote appliance at night you're supposed to wear. But I no, I do. I do it like once every two weeks when I think of it.
0: OK. Because I gives was you debating bad breath. getting it. It does. Yeah. I don't it know. It gives you bad breath. I'm like a breath freak it's the sound. I would never notice really yeah oh I think it's terrible but I'm also lazy so yeah I'm lazy anyway the shit works like it does work but <laughs> we are not sponsored by Invisalign yeah, here today that's true so how what was it like having f- three kids in four years and was that planned no or? all my kids were accidents and I had a miscarriage
1: in there too in the middle I just kept sh- like shitting them out my husband really wanted four and I wanted two and we split the diff and had three okay But after the, when the miscarriage happened, I was like, okay, I guess I do want a third because I felt like sad for one hour. And then I went and had like three glasses of wine and I wasn't sad anymore. And I'm, I'm a big believer. And I tell everybody who's had miscarriages, like it's nature doing its thing. You don't want to.
0: No, you don't want what that, that. Exactly. So I was, I was
1: sad for one hour, literally. And then I was like, okay, let's go and drink. I'm not even that big of a drinker,
0: but. I feel like motherhood started me drinking, kind of. Yes. My bottles of wine started after my son.
1: Yeah. I never did that. I didn't even drink at my wedding. I think I had like a sip of champagne. Yeah. And now it's evened out again. It's weird. Now I don't crave alcohol as much because they're just not humming tantrums or shitting themselves or anything like that. How old are they? Um, Almost 16... 13 and
0: 11. Wow. Yeah. So you're you're in the clear. They don't want to hang out with you necessarily. Actually, I am very lucky. I have really good. My son is like I have two
1: girls and people are like, oh, there was a lecture at my daughter's school. They invited us to saying how to deal with your teenager, you know, and all this stuff. And I was like, I'm good. Like, I'm really, really lucky. She's we have a really good relationship. My son is the one that gives me grief and most people are like, boys love their mommies and the girls are the difficult ones and I have the opposite. I'm wow. like, he, well, I think he loves me, but we butt heads.
0: Right. Let's put it that way. Okay. Like he's my door slammer, not the teenage girls. So funny how that works. It's weird. Yeah. yeah. So what it, What was in, in all this, you know, thread from magazines to books to then this uh, odd mom out and now a free agent? A free agent. The thread is basically, I think, continuing
1: to say what you want, write what you want, and just like follow your gut. I had a couple setbacks um, where I didn't listen. And one example is last year. Listen to your gut. Yes. Okay. But only because I don't have it's funny you, 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 when you're told over and over again, like you're new in this industry and you're, you have to listen to the people. I, I finally realized like nobody knows anything, you know, I, I have to trust my gut and not this, you know, I never had an agent when on my mom out started and I actually love my agent and wasn't, it's nothing to do with her, but I feel like you, there's a sense of the industry and the way things are done and that I was supposed to follow along and pitch a certain way or do things the way that it's done. And I never have had that playbook. Yeah. And um, I think one of the reasons odd mom out felt fresh to, our viewers was that I didn't have that experience in the writer's room where there, where this sort of the rules of act one, and you have to build to this and then scene break. And there's all these rules in writer's rooms. And I was like, yeah, I just want to do this. And I didn't have, the cool thing about Bravo is it was because it's mostly reality. It was the wild, wild west. They didn't have a team of scripted, you know, department executives who were giving me notes. So no one was clipping my wings. I got to really say what I wanted to say. Right. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that normally. So that was a huge wake-up call to me. So when Odd Mom Out um, finished, I sold a show to NBC. It was the Munsters where I was doing a reboot, and Seth Meyers and Mike Shoemaker were producing, and I loved them. I worshipped them. I was so lucky to work with them. But I remember saying, I don't think NBC is the right fit for this. I think it should be. I love to curse. I want to be dark. I have dark humor, and it's a dark subject. And I knew Eddie Munster in my version, would be a teenager and would come out as gay at the end of the pilot. And I wanted to talk about like some of the depression he was facing and all this shit. And NBC was, you know, the home for it because Seth is there and everybody was saying, you know, they want to take it off the table like you're just go with them. And even though I knew that it would have been better streaming. I, I did it and, and it was, and it, it didn't get on the air. So it, it felt like, and you never get it back once that happens. No, it's no, there. because they own. So universal owns NBC and universal owns the monsters. And you never so get it back. No, I Ugh. mean, I have the script. What I do sometimes is all like grave rob my own scripts and put jokes in other things. So okay. I feel like there's a lot of good shit in there that will make its way out okay. somewhere. Right. Somehow. I don't know how yet, but I kind of like
0: bank jokes. And so be, do you draw a lot of your inspiration from the life you have lived, being that you're from New York, you've grown up on, I'm assuming, the Upper East Side? Yes. Now I'm in Midtown. I'm in Dorito, down under Roosevelt
1: Island, Tram Overpass. Oh, that's a thing. Well, it's a thing now. But I i feel like I, yes, is the answer. Odd Mom Out, definitely. I mind from my life and applying to kindergarten and all the bullshit that New York moms deal with, with like type A competitive moms. Um. But I feel like I, my kids have grown, so now I'm interested in the teen world. Like I think I want to talk about that. And there's also kind of a hole in the teen movie marketplace. I miss John Hughes terribly, yeah. and I get in bed with my girls and watch all the Pretty in Pink and Ferris Bueller and Sixteen Candles. And the beauty of those movies to me was that they didn't know what to say. They didn't have like a perfect zinger. You know, Molly Ringwald was biting her lower lip and feeling invisible. And then there was a spate of teen movies where you know, they had the perfect comeback and this quip and they were had just like the best art, articulated insults and I never had those in my back pocket when I was 15. So it just felt overwritten. And I want to go back to that kind of purity of those teen movies and okay. feeling invisible. And then I'm actually readdressing some of John Hughes's themes through the lens of the kind of pernicious side of social media.
0: What does pernicious mean?
1: Like dangerous dark. Okay. Yes. But I, I love Instagram. I think it's the best. I'm on it. I spend a lot of time on it. I love looking. I love keyholes into people's lives. But I wasn't a teenager with it. I'm a forty four year old. When I see my girls going through and they'll zoom in on people's bikini body on the beach or wherever, I, I I'm constantly reminding them they took thirty selfies to get that one. There are filters, there are face tune, body tune. Like this is artifice. This isn't their life. It's a construct. Right.
0: And do you think the girls know that? They do. Okay. They do. Cause I'm it in their fucking heads. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Cause I have a four year old. And so I'm like, as I, as she grows, I'm like, how is this going to work? It's kind of frightening. You just have to talk about it all the time. Right. <laughs> this is fake constantly. I don't get my makeup done every day for no reason. Right. Exactly. So what do you think your next, what are you working on now? Well, I'm working on um, an adaptation of a book that a
1: writer who I love did, and I'm I'm going to pitch it in L.A. That's kind of a long shot. And then um, I don't know. I really think I want to try writing a movie. It's been 20 years, twenty twenty one 21 yeah. years since I've done that. I don't even know if I know how to do it, but I'm just going to fucking try. And the worst thing that can happen is it like rots in a
0: drawer somewhere. But who cares? So you strike me as someone that is fearless. I'm
1: not fearless. I have like really irrational fears. Like what? Um, okay, clowns. Okay. Rats. Okay. Um, suburbia. Like I told you, I have suburban panic disorder. I, I don't know how to drive. Red states right now. I'm really like freaked out by the polarization in our country. And I'm obviously a Democrat and liberal. So I just I feel like I hear banjo music if I cross the George Washington Bridge. Like I just don't <laughs> want to be not in New York right now because I don't feel that safe, ok. Although I met some really nice people in Texas a couple weeks ago. I was there for a speaking engagement. and there there are pockets of blue everywhere, I will say, and like-minded people. But I feel like, I grew up in a house where it was, you know, difference of opinion was a good thing, but it's become so extreme that to me, it's not difference of opinion. It's just right and wrong. Yeah. So I can't really spend time with Republicans right now. I hear you. So I have a fear of dumb people. Okay. And I have a fear of haters. Like I don't hate anybody, but I hate haters. Like if you're racist or homophobic or whatever, I just, I, those people I can't abide and I can't even have a conversation with them. Right.
0: As far as... Things that have challenged you or been, you mentioned some setbacks, but have there been uh, deep challenges or things that made you not scared as in like a clown or a rat, but just like, oh shit, how do I get through this huge challenge? Yes.
1: Okay. So I have two. Okay. The first is I had a double mastectomy last summer. I had two lumps in my left boob that they found actually around, mm, I guess like fall of 2017. And they said, well, you have these two lumps, you can do a lumpectomy. We were doing like breast MRIs every three months where you lie in that tube. It sucks. Like your boobs go in these empty cones and for like an hour and you hear this horrible noise. They give you a sedative, but I don't really like drugs because then I can't poo. So um, I did that three times. And while I was waiting between, they were they were each three months apart. While I was waiting, I did the full work up at Sloan Kettering, they do genetic testing, and it turned out I have a breast cancer gene. It's like a lot of Jews have it, and I wound up deciding I just didn't want to stick around and wait for this shit to turn into cancer when it's all over my family, both sides. Wow. So I was like, fuck it, I'm doing a mastectomy. So I did the double mastectomy last um June, June of 2018. And the reconstructive surgery in August. And that was fucking hard for me because I had the drains, I had all the shit and I'm not into the medical stuff. Well, I, yeah, and I didn't take any pain. And by the way, I had an epidural when I had my kids. I'm not one of those hippies. that's like, I'm gonna shit it out in a bathtub and I rule. I got a birth announcement once that said natural childbirth engraved in the lower left-hand corner. And I was like, fuck you, who cares? <laughs> I'm not anti-drugs. I'm just saying for me, I can't take any of that opioids. Like I can't believe America's addicted because you cannot poo. So I just took Tylenol. I was in terrible pain. I drank wine, but not enough to make the pain totally go away. So that was tough. And then right on the heels of that, my son came home from school crying and I had my drains still in and it was gross. Like you have these tubes coming out of your pits with like blood and pus and it's fucking gross. And it's gross. It's scary for a kid to see that. And I tried to cover it up with bathrobes, Yeah. but they were there, you know, like you see it. And um, he had tears in his eyes and sat on my bed. And I was, I said, I'm going to be okay, sweetie. It's all going to be okay. And he's like, no, it's not about you. Like he, I realized, like, I just thought that he was crying because of my state. And he was like, no, this kid in school um, came up to me and said, God sent Hitler to kill the Jews because you nailed Jesus to the cross. Whoa. So I like flipped out, like I'm a generally really happy person. I'm I'm one of the happiest people I know. I went into like a really dark place. I started sobbing and I didn't stop crying for like four hours. I called my parents. I'm really close to my parents. It's like not normal. I'm 44. I talk to them every day. I called my parents bawling. And my dad, of course, his first instinct was like, look, you've been through a lot. You just had surgery. Yeah. I was going to say you're emotional. Calm down. You're emotional. And I was like, this has nothing to do with my boobs. Like I forget the mastectomy. Like I didn't even care about the mastectomies at that point. Right. I was so traumatized that my child had to hear that because I grew up in New York in the 70s and I never heard anything like that. Right. Never. So I was shocked cuz it's fucking New York, you know. And I've had a couple instances where I've heard people say things about Jews and whatever and it was disturbing. But this traumatized me. I felt like what's wrong with the world. It got like heavier. It wasn't just about this one kid or family. It just turned in my head into this like cloud thundercloud of like, this is a horrible world, you know, and it was really hard to get through that. I had about three weeks where I cried every day. Wow. It was really depressing. Um, And then. So I, what it, did you do? So my daughter came home and said, you know, this girl, I heard about this girl. The the cool thing also about Instagram is it makes New York a little smaller because you these kids follow kids from other schools that they meet once and then they see this whole prism into their world. And anyway, it becomes your social circle becomes exponential and your Venn diagrams like constantly growing with, with everybody you meet. So she and she sees the overlap of the Venn diagram with who follows, you know. So she knew through a friend, through another friend, that this girl who's a lesbian, she was um, called a dyke at her school. And she just like as a total Hail Mary called over to my daughter's school and tried to switch to an all girl school. She thought she would feel safer because it was a boy who said this and they made a spot for her. And it's kind of like an amnesty admissions thing. Like you don't really hear about it, but you can apply off season and in a special circumstance. So she said, "I think you should do that for Fletch." So as like a total like fuck it move, I called over to the schools. I called three schools and said, "Like this is what happened." Two of the schools said, "We don't have a spot." You know, please apply in September. We're horrified. We're so sorry for your son and that you're going. You know, had to go through this. And then the last school was like, come down, come, when can you be here? So I went down to the village with my husband and they, this is the same, similar situation. They basically created a spot for him. So once I knew we were out of the school, because the issue was also that the school didn't do anything. Right. Um, So they, the kid missed a field trip and got like a slap on the wrist. And I felt like that wasn't sufficient. And the whole school should have been addressed that they have zero tolerance for this kind of rhetoric and that it's unacceptable nothing like that. And they just don't want, they sweep dirt under the rug. They want everything to look perfect. So I decided to um, write an essay about the whole experience for Tablet, which I thought was kind of sub rosa because I had never really heard of it. It's like a Jewish magazine online. So I wrote it for that. And then I was shocked that it got picked up by a lot of other media and I got felt a little like nervous and exposed because I didn't, I meant for it to just be something in my community that I was talking about. And then it kind of went viral. So I felt a little bit nervous for a couple of days. And then ultimately I got tons of letters from people from my son's school, alums, parents saying we had a similar thing and they did nothing. So in the end, I, I think it, made change over there. They're, they brought in somebody to deal with stuff like this. Wow. Um, But not my problem. Cause we're not there and we're so happy. I feel like I have a new lease on life. Wow. Yeah. But it was, it was Intense. 2018 was not a great year for me. No. Yeah. But, but I did the reconstructive surgery. Did you keep the nips? I kept the nips. They cut under my guy, Alexander Swistel kind of pioneered this surgery where they cut under your boobs. So the scars are under. Oh, so I ha- no. you can't even see them. So I have my nips and my boobs look like kind of porn starish. I mean, they look really fake, but who cares? Like they look like I was 18, you know? Wow. And you still have to get checked though? No, they, there's, no there's no mammograms. There's nothing in there. They scooped out everything. So there's no, I think you get an MRI every five years. Okay. But there's nothing to check. It's all like silicone.
0: My cousin did that because she carries the gene. So she just was like, nope, everything's gone.
1: Yeah. It's really, I have to say, I think it depends on your personality. A lot of women, I know women who had full on tumors, breast cancer tumors, and didn't want to get mastectomies. They just kept doing lumpectomies. They're fine with it. They didn't want to mess with their boobs. Like their sexual identity was wrapped up in their boobs. I have never, like my, the way I dress is not cleavy. I never call my boobs the twins. I never like think of my boobs as like a part of my identity. So right. it was no biggie for me. Right. But there are other women where they were like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I'm like, but it's not, you know, the, my grandmother's double mastectomy. She had two scars across her whole boobs. And, you know, even for years after what well, you were basically franken tits and now it it's, you really can't tell. I mean, you can tell they're fake, but you can't tell that you had this done. Right? You know, it just looks like any playboy person. You know? I have
0: zero sexual connection to my breasts. They're udders to feed my children.
1: Yeah. I didn't even nurse. <laughs> I was a bottle feeder Yeah, because my nips were like clits. That's the one thing is I had like two clits taped on my boobs, basically. <laughs> so when my when I was nursing my first one, I was in agony. It was bleeding. Like I hated nursing. So I stopped. So I bottle fed the, all three. And the thing is with my husband, like if he wanted to touch my boobs, I, they were so sensitive. Sometimes I would like swat him away and just be like, fuck off. Don't touch me. Right. Whereas now I don't feel anything. So I'm like, go to town. I don't give a shit. So he's actually happy. That's great. It's best of both worlds. It's best of both worlds. Sometimes <laughs> I miss it because I'm not like aroused as much. Right. Like I don't get a rap. Like I, I have to have like two glasses of wine before I want to like bone or anything. But I feel like I was kind of like that anyway. I was getting... Like, I, I don't know, like three kids
0: kind of desexualize me. My husband just said the other day, he said, honey, it's like we're friends with kids. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, God. I made
1: myself always bone, though, because I feel like I know it's the only thing about me that's really old fashioned where I feel like if you don't fuck your husband, someone else will. True. I mean, yeah. I don't think Harry would, but I just feel like I got I don't know, even if I'm not in the mood, I like flop on my back. It's hard. It's
0: really hard. But I feel like. You know, I, I, you're always glad you did after. Always. I'm always like, why don't we do this more? Yeah. It's always a good time. And then it's just, yeah anyways. Is it so
1: bad? Sometimes I also think, oh yeah, I'm so glad we just did it because I don't have to do it tomorrow.
0: Yep. Like I feel like off the hook for two days. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> yes. so bad. It's bad. I'm really glad. No, that my I love my husband. Not, He's a good person. My husband does not listen to this podcast, so that's good. <laughs> so is there anything else you want to add? <laughs> um, no, just that, that, that
1: you are an inspiration and you juggle it all. And thank you for doing everything you do because it
0: like makes me feel like I can get off my ass and oh do my a new projects. There's one question I always ask. Yes. What would we be surprised to know about you? I'm sure it's very rare because you're an open book, but what would be? Okay. One surprise because I only wear black and I love
1: Halloween. It's my favorite holiday and I'm kind of a goth person. I actually love Valentine's Day. I'm in love with love. I used to have a Valentine's Day party every year. And I had acapella singers come. That might also be a surprise. I love Broadway musicals. But I'm in love with love. So I do love hearts. I have heart tattoos here. You know, I have my swords and I have my gothic New York on my back in the New York Times font. But I also have hearts.
0: Being that you have... Done so many things in so many different fields. Do you have any advice you'd like to leave our listeners with about Um, anything? Yes. Could be about sex.
1: Well, it's more of like you're raised all the time saying better safe than sorry. And I think better sorry than safe. I like that. Yeah. That's good. I feel like I'd rather have regret, but trash it. But don't be safe because that's actually not safe. Right. Then you'll be
0: claustro in your own skull. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You'll be a step for wife. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. That was Jill Kargman, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And you can follow her at Jill Kargman. I just wanted to read you guys a couple of new reviews that came in. Um, again, I read almost every single review that is sent. I read over every email. And if I don't respond to you right away, I'm sorry. But I'm reading. Um, this one's from Blush Not Pink. The only reason I'm still saying, Wow. This podcast has salvaged the very select remnants of my sanity. Rebecca has created this incredibly safe community for young female entrepreneurs. I'm a newly minted ED, executive director, running a brand new nonprofit, very much on my own. Absolutely everything runs through my hands. Hearing the struggles, real genuine problems, fears, pains, and sometimes just pure crazy that some of my own role models and other powerful women have faced gives me the space and comfort to breathe a little and know I'm not alone. Thank you for creating this incredible and empowering space for women, especially those who need to know the journey is messy, imperfect, scary, and still beautiful. Listen, Blush Not Pink, it is always scary. And I think it's becoming more and more apparent to me that everyone I talk to has horror stories almost every day. And so I think it's about getting used to the horror stories and accepting them and getting used to all the holes in the boat and just keeping that bucket handy.